are listening to the sermon podcast of Brockport First Baptist. We are a progressive American Baptist congregation located about 20 minutes outside of Rochester, New York. To learn more about our church and support our ministries, please visit BrockportFirstBaptist.org. Our scripture reading this morning is from Psalm 72, verses 1 through 15. Give the king your justice, O God, and your righteousness to a king's son. May he judge your people with righteousness and your poor with justice. May the mountains yield prosperity for the people and the hills in righteousness. May he defend the cause of the poor of the people, give deliverance to the needy and crush the oppressor. May he live while the sun endurest, and as long as the moon throughout all generations. May he be like rain that falls on the mown grass, like showers that water the earth. In his days may righteousness flourish, and peace abound until the moon is no more. May he have dominion from sea to sea, and from the river to the ends of the earth. May his foes bow down before him, and his enemies lick the dust. May the kings of Tarshish and the isles render him tribute, May the kings of Sheba and Seba bring gifts. May all the kings fall down before him, and all nations give him service. For he delivers the needy when they call, the poor and those who have no helper. He has pity on the weak and the needy, and saves the lives of the needy. From oppression and violence he redeems their life, and precious is their blood in their sight. Long may he live. Thank you, Michael and Kim. Great work. <clears throat> that was awesome. Good morning, everybody. So this is it. Uh, we are at the end of our series on the book of Psalms. For the last um, seven weeks or so, we've been doing a deep dive into the Psalms um, each week, digging into this centuries-old collection of hymns and poems and prayers. Um, and each week, we've looked at a different genre from the book of Psalms. Uh, we've really gotten to see the scope of this book, I would say, with, with this series, from the highs of like praise psalms and psalms of thanksgiving to the lows and the sadness of lament and cursing psalms. We've talked about wisdom psalms, creation psalms, and now we're wrapping up 
by looking at one last genre, royal psalms. As you can probably guess, royal psalms are basically psalms about the king. Uh, Psalms that celebrate the king, that offer prayers for the king. Psalms that emerge from some specific element of, like, the king's life. Um, A good example is Psalm 72, which Michael just sung for us. Um, I'll read it. Uh, We're going to get a few other snippets in here, but it goes something like this. Give the king your justice, O God, and your righteousness to a king's son. May he judge your people with righteousness and your poor with justice. May he live while the sun endures. May he have dominion from sea to sea. May his foes bow down before him and his enemies lick the dust. I like that line. (laughs) Um, For he delivers the needy when they call, the poor and those who have no helper. He has pity on the weak. Long may he live. Long live the king. You get the idea, right, with these psalms and what they're about. These psalms come out of like the royal, the civic life, almost the governmental life of ancient Israel. And I've got to say, these are psalms that we don't read all that often in church anymore. Royal psalms make up about 10% of the Psalter. This is like, like 15 or 16 psalms we're talking about here. But we don't read them very often, especially in the United States, because the thought of having a king makes us very uncomfortable. Our nation was founded as an act of rebellion against a king, right? Like our, our origin story as a people it was basically the founding fathers telling King George of England to go pound sand. Like, that was basically how it all started. We don't like kings. We don't want a king. There are people today who say that our current president acts like a king. We're not going to get into that. We're not going to go there so much. But, like, that's not a compliment, right? Like, whoever's in power, when the other party accuses our president of acting like a king, that's an insult, Like, that speaks to, um, uh, you know, corruption, dishonesty, misuse of power. We don't like kings. We don't trust kings. We don't want a king. So what the heck are we supposed to do with these royal psalms? My hope for today is that by the time we're done here, um, we'll actually have some answers to that question. Hopefully we'll get there along the way. First, though, I think it's really important to try to hear these psalms on their own terms to enter into their world and explore what they're all about, where they came from, why they became so important to the ancient Israelites. Why did these psalms about the king outlive the monarchy itself and wind up in our Bibles? If we can answer that question, then we might have a path for using these kind of psalms in our worship time and in our spiritual lives together. So let's dig in. Uh, We're going to start by talking a little bit about the context of these psalms and the type of of psalms we're dealing with. As we've gone through this series, we've seen that basically the genres we're looking at can kind of be put in two camps. You've got certain psalm genres that are determined by structure and other genres that are determined more by theme. With praise psalms, psalms of thanksgiving, laments, even most cursing psalms, there's like a specific road road map, a a structure that's followed. There's a flow to these. Um, There is a way that you write a psalm of thanksgiving. There are elements we expect to see in every lament, crying out to God, voicing a complaint, petitioning for rescue, that sort of thing. There's a structure. But then with the other genres, they don't work that way. There's not a given structure. They're centered on a theme. Creation psalms, wisdom psalms, royal psalms are in this group as well. 
we don't have a certain structure for creation psalms. They're just psalms about creation, psalms about nature. When you see the psalmist singing about the heavens and the earth and God as creator, you know you're in a creation psalm. The royal psalms work a lot like that. There's no predetermined order. When the psalmist is singing about the king, we're in a royal psalm. And royal psalms are among the most topical psalms we find in our Bibles. They're almost all written for like a specific occasion, a specific event or occurrence in the life of the king. In fact, in many cases, we can read these poems now, thousands of years later, and have a pretty good sense of what they were written for way back then. A lot of these psalms are coronation hymns. Songs that would have been sung when a new king was crowned. Psalm 2 is a really good kind of famous example of this. I'm going to read a bit of it beginning in verse 6. Imagine it being read at like a coronation though. I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell the, de the decree of the Lord. He has said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage, the ends of the earth your possession. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and trembling. Kiss his feet, or he will be angry and you will perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Happy are all who take refuge in him. This is a coronation hymn. If you've watched The Crown on Netflix, or heck, if you've seen the movie Frozen, you should be somewhat familiar with coronations. You could imagine a song like this being sung when a new king takes the throne. There's other occasions a royal psalm could be written for, though. Uh, one example is a royal wedding. Uh, psalm 45 is a really good example of this. In my Bible, it even has a subtitle, Ode for a Royal Wedding, which is appropriate. I'll read a bit of this as well. It'll be on the screen. Psalm 45. <clears throat> my heart overflow overflows with a goodly theme. I address my verses to the king. You are the most handsome of men, Grace is poured upon your lips. Therefore, God has blessed you forever. Gird your sword on your thigh, O mighty one, in your glory and majesty. Hear, O daughter, consider and incline your ear. Forget your people and your father's house, and the king will desire your beauty. The princess is decked in her chamber with gold-woven robes. In many colored robes, she's led to the king. Behind her, the virgins, her companions, follow. With joy and gladness, they are led along as they enter the palace of the king. In the palace of ancestors, you, O king, shall have sons. You will make them princes in all the earth. I will cause your name to be celebrated in all generations. Therefore, the peoples will praise you forever and ever. The context of this psalm is a royal wedding. Um, it's a little patriarchal, right? Just a tad. Um, super heteronormative. It's 2,600 years old. I think we can kind of give some leeway here. But the context is obvious. This is a song that was composed for a royal wedding. Have you ever seen how kind of wild and obsessive people still go today over royal weddings? Even in the United States, for, uh, for some reason, we still get crazy about this kind of stuff. Um, picture, Travis, boom. This kind of thing, this is, what, this is what I'm talking about. If you've ever seen this phenomenon of how over the top we go when the royals get married, then you kind of have an understanding of the context of this song. All that to say that one of the most interesting things about these psalms is that they come out of particular occasions, coronations, weddings, victories in battle, that sort of thing. Which raises a really important question, and it's a question that I hinted at a few minutes ago. Why did these psalms, which were so contextual, so specific to like a certain event, 
Why did they outlive that context? Why did these royal songs become part of the worship life of ancient Israel and wind up in our Bibles? How did that happen? And the answer is we often find, we wrestle with these kind of questions about the Bible, lies in the exile. When the Jewish people no longer had a king of their own. We've talked about the exile before. We actually talked about it a few weeks ago in this series. Um, But just to recap, in 587 B.C., the Babylonian Empire sweeps through the land, conquers Jerusalem, destroys the city, and drives the survivors into exile. That was the end of the monarchy in Jerusalem. No more kings. The last king of Jerusalem, uh, King Zedekiah, things did not go very well for him. Um, The Babylonians gouged his eyes out after forcing him to watch the execution of his sons, the the princes, the potential heirs to the throne. And then King Zedekiah died in exile in 561 B.C., and that was it. That was the end of the monarchy in ancient Israel. No more kings. And yet somehow, it was during the exile that these royal psalms take on a whole new meaning, a whole new significance for the people. If you know anything about the history of Israel, if, you, um, if you've read books in the Bible like Kings, Samuel, Chronicles, you know that the monarchy was a total disaster. God never wanted the people to have a king. God specifically told them not to have a king. God warned them that the king will rule over you, the king will tax you to fill up his own coffers, uh, the king will send your sons into battle, but the Israelites didn't listen. They wanted a king because they wanted to be just like all the other nations. So God gave them a king, and it was a total disaster. Most of the kings in Israel's history were, were corrupt, evil, wicked figures. Even the, the good kings like David, Solomon, Hezekiah, they were like pretty screwed up in their own right. There's almost no way these songs about the kings wind up in the Psalms without the exile. Because when the monarchy ends, these royal psalms take on a new significance as songs of resistance. Why would a a nation of refugees, living in a foreign land under the rule of an oppressive empire, why would they sing songs about a monarchy that was dead and gone? It was an act of resistance. They sang these songs about their former kings because they didn't respect the tyrant who was ruling over them in Babylon. This would be like an American POW humming the star-spangled banner from his cell in a prisoner of war camp. Or think of like Native Americans singing their ancestral songs in protest while more of their lands are seized by our government. Or think of the climax in The Sound of Music, One of the best films ever made, I think we can agree. Where the Von Trapp family is there. They're in Nazi-controlled Austria, in a theater crawling with Nazis, and they sing the national song of Austria. These are resistance psalms. They didn't start out that way, but that's what they turned into. Songs that call into question every act of tyranny, every power-hungry ruler, every empire that has ever tried to exert its dominance on the globe. These psalms are in our Bibles to remind us that there is another king, a better king, 
that the powers of this world will rise and fall. Power-hungry men, it's almost always men, isn't it? Power-hungry men might seize control for a while, but empires always crumble. Every man-made kingdom has an expiration date. If you were to peel back all the layers of the universe, get to the real heart of reality behind the scenes, we discover that there's only one true king with any legitimate claim to power and authority, and that king's kingdom is in heaven. In fact, over the centuries, as these exiles, these Jewish refugees, suffered under empire after empire, the Babylonians, the Persians, the Greeks, the Romans, they kept singing these psalms. They'd keep humming these melodies to themselves. And eventually, this music triggered a new hope. What if there was a king to end all kings? What if God were to anoint a true heir to the throne of David, someone whose kingdom would last forever? What if God were to send a Messiah, a Christ, an anointed king? That's what the words Messiah and Christ mean, by the way, anointed king. What if God were to send a heavenly revolutionary who could take everything the empires of this world had to throw at him, even death itself, and stay standing. I will tell the decree of the Lord. He has said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. When the gospel writers started to share their stories about Jesus, about his life, death, and resurrection, they drew on these royal psalms because they believed that that promised king had already come. They recognized Jesus as the king of kings, the king to end all kings. The promised Messiah who would bring God's kingdom to bear once and for all on earth as it is in heaven. See, the ancient Israelites, they made the mistake of settling. They settled for a human king when their true king was divine. They looked to a human figure to save them and deliver them from their enemies when they should have trusted God. And even though we don't care much for kings today, especially in the United States, we fall for that same trap over and over again. We settle for strong men. Kings who promise to elevate us and crush our enemies. We idolize our favorite politicians mistaking flawed human leaders for God's anointed. Republicans do it. Democrats do it. Even people with like no official party ID like me still do it. And as we come into another election season in our country, as things get so heated, so divided, so polarized, we've got to keep this lesson at the forefront. You can have your favorite candidates. That's fine. Christians should be involved in our democracy. I think that's a good thing. You can have candidates you're excited about, you're campaigning for, you're hoping to beat or that you're hoping win. That's all well and good. But don't put your faith in them. I don't care if we're talking about Donald Trump, Michael Bloomberg, Bernie Sanders, 
Whoever our fellow citizens elect to rule over them, whether it's your guy or gal or the other side's guy or gal, don't follow them blindly. Don't fall into the partisan trap. Don't put your faith in them. Don't excuse behavior you know to be wrong or immoral just because it's your side doing it. Don't overlook the plight of the poor and those at the margins just because things are going well for you. Remember that you are a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. Your king died on a Roman cross 2,000 years ago to prove to us that there is nothing the empire can throw at us that can't be overcome. And maybe, regardless of who's president for the next four years, maybe we should all consider singing one of these royal psalms from time to time as a faithful act of resistance. Let's pray. God, you are our king. But we confess that we have been unfaithful. We have looked to flawed human leaders to save us when we should have been trusting you. We've put our faith in campaign slogans, political platforms, when our faith belongs to you. So God, we ask that you would guard our hearts, especially in this heated season our country is heading into. Keep us focused on your kingdom and your promises. Empower us for the work of justice and peace. Let the plight of the poor and the excluded be ever on our hearts, God. And help us to follow your son, Jesus as our one and only King. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed what you heard, please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast on iTunes. You can connect with us on Facebook at Brockport First Baptist, on Twitter at BrockportFB, and on our website, BrockportFirstBaptist.org. Our theme music was composed by Scott Holmes. This has been a production of Brockport First Baptist.